you know, I was young, our collective team was young. Uh, we're all broke. And so you had nothing to lose, really. And we were naive enough that we didn't know what you couldn't do. Those three things are actually pretty important because, you know, fear is the greatest disabler. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Welcome to the podcast. My name is John Davids. And today I am sitting down with John Love founder and CEO of Kingset Capital. Kingset is a multi-billion dollar real estate private equity firm. And before that, John ran Oxford Properties, another billion dollar success story. He took it from a few million bucks to over a billion, sold it to private equity. That deal closed in 2001. And the story of the day that deal closed, which John shares with us, gave me chills. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. You can get me on Twitter at RealJohnDavids. Of course, hashtag making it. Give it a listen. All right, John, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, so you've been in, in the real estate business for, it sound, I, I believe, your whole life. You, you were kind of born into a, a real estate family. Is that, is that right? Um, well, I graduated, after graduating this school, I was a retail stockbroker for five years first. Um, but then I joined Oxford after that. And was 20 years at Oxford, and uh, I was uh, in between for six months. And then 20 years ago, we started Kingset. And and Oxford, uh, I was doing my my research earlier. Oxford was founded by your father, or he was in, he was a, okay. Correct. No, it was founded by my father in 1960 in Edmonton. Okay, very cool. And so, do you did you grow up? Were you kind of I don't know evenings, summers, weekends? Were you in the business, or or, or not so much until later? Um. Well, I, th- I think, you know, when you grow up in a business family, you know, uh, the kitchen table uh, tends to have some business chatter with it. Um, you know, I've got um, three siblings, the four of us, you know, one is a, a doctor, one is a, is a professor, and, and one's an entrepreneur. And uh, so it was a range of, of where we all, uh, where we all went. But my, you know, my father was a big idea guy and uh, built a great business, taught me a lot. And uh, but it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion. You made the choice, and 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 it was it was your calling ultimately. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, you know, I mean, life is is happenstance. I mean, uh, when I started with what is now Scotia McLeod uh, in the seventies, um, you know, being a retail stockbroker was not things most people wanted to do. Uh, for me, it was a fantastic starting spot, and I, I learned a ton. And then after, but after five or six, five years, I guess. You know, I, I sort of said, I'm not sure I want to do this for the rest of my life. And uh, and I went and joined Oxford. I want to get into, into your story a little more and King Set, but I want to just kind of start at the macro level. Um, we like to talk about kind of the recipes and, and the formulas for success. So you're obviously, you've been in the real estate business a very long time. Uh, if, if I was talking to somebody about real estate five years ago, I would say the recipe for real estate, if you're getting started, is to scrape together a few bucks to buy that first property fix it up, rent it out, and, and maybe rinse and repeat with that formula. And then COVID came along and I think kind of upended a lot of what people were doing in the real estate business. So I guess my big question is, has the real estate business fundamentally changed over the last two, three years? No. And, and I think the same, uh, you know, there's the same ingredients of success today as there was a year ago, as there was 20 years ago, as there was 40 years ago. In, in real estate, uh, you know, we're not looking for the cure for cancer. We're not trying to crack the atom. You know, success is all about building relationships and uh, building your personal brand, uh, learning basic building blocks about how to deal with customers, how to attract customers, investors, um, and how to, how to meet their needs. Because if you can do that, you'll be successful in this business. And, and it is building relationships um, is, is the secret sauce to success. So it, it is relationships, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll push back on that. You know, I, I know lots of examples of folks that owned urban real estate, uh, you know, downtown condos and that sort of thing. You can have great relationships, but at the end of the day, you've got to have liquidity. And, and if the market turns and you know, sort of uh, goes into into correction territory uh, as suddenly as it did, I think a, a lot of people did kind of lose their shirts there. So is it, is it, is there, there's something more to it? You know, you, it sounds like you sort of coasted through or, or maybe, maybe did better than others. What, what is it really that keeps people successful over decades? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's obviously not one 
not one thing that contributes to everything. Um, but I'll tell you that when, um, you know, it, it is, you know, and I'll tell you this, I, I believe this quite strongly, um, that it is your relationships, your culture, your values that, that allows you to drive through and survive the chicanes of market downturns. Because it's those people that are able to rely on their investors, their stakeholders, their, their co-workers, et cetera, et cetera, um, that are able to figure this stuff out. People that are are a bit sharp edged, uh, you know, uh, don't build relationships and so on and so forth. When things turn a little bit, everybody gets out of the way. Right. Um, and there's no one there to help. And and I've been through enough cycles to understand exactly how this works. Yeah. Had you been some? Had you been through something, or had you had some point of reference uh, in 2020? Was that like anything else, or was that really its own animal? Yeah, it it was it was its own animal because really there was no <laughs> didn't have financial pressure. Had this health pressure, and you know it was terrifying and isolating and, and all the normal things that people do, which is to aggregate and communicate and create and do all those things, get energy from others, you weren't allowed to do because you're stuck in a, in a 2D environment. Um, but but the fact is that there was no economic crisis. And, you know, it doesn't hurt the different levels of government of putting $30 billion a month into the economy. So um, you've got this massive fiscal stimulus with super low interest rates. And guess what? Everybody went through fine. And I think as I go around and talk to people, I say, how's your business? They say, well, you know, like it's COVID and locked up and so on and so forth. But actually, last year was a good year or a better year or a great year, whatever. And the only pain points are people that are running small businesses that require being open to operate and that were forced to close. And, and those are the people that felt the real pain. That's very true. I, and it was surprising, you know, once we got sort of past the, the early onset, a lot of folks I talked to in the digital world and the, in the virtual world, and even people, frankly, that, that had businesses that had a bit of a cushion where they could survive a few months, you know, of, of kind of a rough patch, people did sail through well. And a lot of them had much better years than, than they thought they were going to. So that, that is true. But even, yeah. even those businesses that, you know, had the, had the most difficult time, uh, tenants who had a good relationship with us um, and had a forward vision and want to work with us and were prepared to do something, we, you know, we accommodated them. And, um, but you also know there's some tenants who were as sharp as elbows. And you know what? We put a vacant sign on their door. So, you know, it, this goes back to, um, you know, business is about uh, dealing with the, um, you know, the circumstances of the day. Um, and, you know, most successful businesses will get through difficult times um, by, you know, relying on relationships that they built up in good times and, and use that relationship capital in the absence of perhaps financial capital. Interesting. Interesting. So I, it's, it's starting to sink in now. When you talk about relationships, you're talking about relationships across the board. So when you don't Absolutely. have... Yeah. When you don't have the cash to make that mortgage payment, but you know it's because of some hiccup, but you're you know, you're you're you got a track record to back you up, that does come in handy. I mean, in the early 90s, which is, you know, unfortunately uh, a lesson <clears throat> long forgotten, the industry was in very difficult shape. And you know, Oxford was also in a challenge. You know, we had our first mortgage payment that we couldn't make. So I went to see the uh, the lender and nervous as hell. And I, I, I went to them and I said, look, we can't make this payment. I showed them why. And I said, this tenant wasn't doing that. And this wasn't doing that, et cetera, et cetera. But we thought, you know, we came up with a couple ideas of how we could, um, you know, work together and create some more income that we could use to pay down the mortgage and so on and so forth. So when I left his office and I was incredibly nervous, he's thank you for coming by. So I stopped and I said, thank you. He said, well, John, we had three kinds of borrowers. First kind have, you know, pay us back, uh, you know, borrow money and pay us back. And we like them the most. Second kind borrow money and are not transparent with us. Maybe hurt the collateral, maybe don't tell us the truth, stuff like that. And we go out of our way to hurt them. So I'm waiting for the third. The third kind of borrower is someone who's got a problem, comes in, tells us what it is, has some ideas, has some plans, wants to work with us, wants to help us. We'll work with them. And we'll work with you. And that defined how Oxford got through the 92 to 94 period. Because we went to people long before there was a problem to explain what, where, and why, and, and what our ideas were, and so on and so forth. And, and you know what? Everybody was 
quite supportive of us through that period and, and allowed us to get through that period and not have CCAA and all those sorts of things. So, um, and I've got other circumstances like that where, you know, I've learned from people in difficult circumstances, uh, you know, how supportive people can be if you are earnest, you know, and you're, you know, built up a relationship, they can trust you uh, and you can move the business forward. That's interesting. So you you went through some some hard time. I mean, you you just you just described ninety two to ninety four at Oxford. How long were you the CEO at Oxford for? What what year did that sell? Uh, so I became CEO. I president in the late eighties. CEO in the summer of ninety two. Um, sort of like catching a falling knife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when you know when my father left the business then, and uh, I was there uh, CEO till oh one. We sold it to owners. Okay. And what what led to that decision to sell? So Oxford had become of a size that it was in now Competition Act challenges in the major markets. Um, you know, we had 25% of the office market in Toronto, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, 20% in Montreal, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we clearly had outgrown that space. Now, I'd worked very hard, and we as a broader team had worked very hard to be better and better at less and less until I would say that we were the best and major office, mixed-use downtown complexes. So um, the decision had to be made, the next strategic decision was to expand asset classes or expand geography. And, you know, I felt that I was not the right CEO for either. So um, we had an opportunity, uh, you know, to engage with a couple of large funds, ultimately were able to engage with owners and did a privatization in uh, that went firm on September 10th, 2001. Oh my goodness. The eve of 9-11, yeah. It went firm as in the deal, the, the, the ink was dry. Wow, wow. That, that's unbelievable. Yeah, my, 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 my 9-11 morning story is I was in Vancouver and, and uh, you know, it was the days when people left you messages on a phone in a hotel. Anyway, so my hotel phone is blinking and I pick it up and uh, there's two messages. The first is from our lawyer who said, you know, and it would have been, you know, uh, midnight Toronto time on the 10th, said, uh, you know, the deal's now gone firm and, and everything's, all, all, everything's signed. It's done, 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 done. The second call was from my wife saying, turn on the TV. So, you know, it's quite a, um, quite a 24 hours. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's unbelievable. That, that's, that's a phenomenal story. I, I, that, that, that's really something. So just, just to go back for a second, um, it, it sounds like you were very self-aware in understanding that you were not the right CEO for the next, uh, you know, uh, vision of the company. Why? Why was that? Um, you know, I, you know, I mean, you know, I, I sort of use that statement as a euphemism for there was a broader context, um, and I felt that for the company to to make the next leap, it needed different strategic makeup. And part of that was, you know, I could see what Omer's ambitions would be and the skills that they could bring to this issue. And it was different than what we were able to do. Um, and, and so having Oxford move to Omer's, uh, you know, made a lot of sense. And if you look at what they've done over the last 20 years, they've taken what I'd like to think was a strong base and done remarkable things over 20 years. And, yeah. and so, you know, I think that what, what I'm, I might have seen um, came to fruition, and in mm. and 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 much more, you know, much they've scaled it much more than I might have imagined. But but the point is that they had the capital, really the access to capital and the access to cost-effective capital, to to take it beyond where we were. I gotcha. And where? So uh, if you remember, after all this time, what what were how? What was the company like when you got it and when you sold it in terms of, if you can say, revenues or units or whatever metric you used? Well, when we, uh, summer of 92, the equity value might have been modest. Uh, when we went public, uh, the equity value was $50 million. Uh, when we went private, it was $1.5 billion. So we'd done $7 billion of acquisitions. And in those days, $7 billion was a big number. Um, so... <laughs> It, it uh, you know, but it was a great team. And, and again, I go back to this relationships, right? So uh, a great management team that was really well connected and, and supportive of each other. So great leadership team. Um, 
we all of the acquisitions we did were with joint ventures with Canadian uh, institutions who were again you know supportive, constructive, helpful. Our lenders were amazing, um, you know, because we we obviously had the difficult times in '92 to '94, um, but they stayed with us and and remained. Uh, supportive, looking after their own interests, of course, but remain, you know, supportive. Um, and so we had, and and we in nine when we went public in '94, we brought in a very key strategic shareholder uh, who stood behind our early transaction, which was required. So all of the right elements of the puzzle uh, were put together. So in a very short period, you know, '94 to '01, seven years, it was quite. Um, transformative. We went from 10 million feet to 65 million feet, et cetera, et cetera. So it was it was an amazing time. And and part of the most fun in my business career was in 92 to 94, when um, you know, Oxford was sort of the 10th largest, you know, whatever. We, we were highly discounted. No one assumed we'd make it through the chicane. And and from a from a management perspective, when the leaders of the industry are all going CCAA and people getting laid off and all this stuff, it's, it's very unsettling. Um, uh, hyper unsettling, uh, way worse than COVID. And it was <clears throat> because people are concerned, you know, can we make payroll? And um, so it was uh, a high energy time. And, you know, I had the advantage of being uh, our team. You know, I was young, our collective team was young. Uh, we we're all broke. Um, and so you had nothing to lose, nothing to lose, really. Um, and so, um, and we were naive enough that we didn't know what you couldn't do. Yeah, and those three things are actually pretty important because, you know, fear is the greatest disabler. And, and, and you know, when I go back to COVID and the lockdowns, you know, I was most anxious about we went overnight from 130 people to 130 people in 130 locations and the isolation and the fear and the anxiety. You know, so it, it was a full on communication offensive by me with, first of all, our people, secondly, our investors, our, our lenders, our other stakeholders, uh, and reaching out to everybody um, saying, like, we're good, we're okay, we have a plan, nobody's going to get laid off, like, you know, th- we'll get through this, the health crisis, not a financial crisis. Yeah. But it is, it is, you know, fear is the greatest enemy of progress. Um, fear and, is the greatest enemy of progress. And, well, if you're well, afraid of what's going on, you, you, you know, everybody gets, uh, can't, can't move forward. Right. I mean, because in addition, I had to make sure all our people were talking to their tenants. How are you doing? You know, and and uh, and other stakeholders. Uh, you know, uh, we had con- investment contracts underway. We, you know, all sorts of lending relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we had to energize everybody in our machine to go talk to all of their various stakeholders. And in the period from March fifteenth, the first lockdown, uh, in the first I don't know six to eight months, we did nearly a thousand bespoke lease amendments. Wow. And, you know, this this is with tenants that are real people. It's all the small commercial tenants and they're real people. And they're, they, you know, their business has been taken away from them. Yeah. Well, they owe us rent. Well, they can't pay the rent. Well, you know, you got a choice. You, you know, is this someone I can work with? In other words, is there a relationship capital here that, <clears throat> that we will see the other side? Because if it is, let's work with them. Let's amend the lease and, you know, we'll restructure things. I don't know. We, and everyone was different. Um, but if it's someone who was just, playing hardball, had no relationship problem. You know what? They didn't, they didn't get a lot of attention. So, so this is where, you know, I go back to the whole relationship issue and, and you know, strategic suppliers, whether they be lenders or your landlord or whatever, um, are super important in every, in every business's ecosystem. And I think most successful businesses treat their suppliers, their employers, their lenders, their whoever's in their community, you know, with respect and understand everybody's got a job to do and everybody has wants something out of the relationship. So what do you want? Because let, let's see how I can help you advance whatever you want. Because when times get tough, and you know what? We always go through, uh, you know, some pressure. Some, no, no, no one can have a 40-year business career without having some, you know, rainy days or the odd tsunami. So <clears throat> as you go through that, uh, that's that relationship capital. That's, that's amazing. I, I, I want to get into that, uh, into that career. So, so, you, uh, so Oxford Sells, I'm sure it was a great payday. Everyone's happy. And now it's 2002 and you found Kingset. So just take me back there. What, why Kingset? What was the vision? What were you trying to do? So when I left Oxford, um, and, and again, you know, I was a, uh, you know, it, was, it was important that I leave Oxford. So um, when I did that, then my wife and I, our, our youngest child just gone away to university. So we went dark for six months. So 
no forwarding emails, no forwarding cell phone numbers, stuff like that. We just disappeared. Now, obviously, our kids and close friends could find us, but other than that, we disappeared. And it was amazing because overnight, um, you go from spending the last 25 years thinking about, you know, when your your default thoughts are always about the same thing, to there's nothing there. And what I realized, you know, within a very short period of time was you have the same amount of intellectual curiosity and, and emotional power and, and, you know, all those things as you did when you focused it all on that business. Now I had to sign something else to focus on. So I got a diary. And for six, and we traveled and stuff like that. And I read my diary. You know, that was all very good for me. Anyway, we came back in April of uh, 2002. Um, and I started my coffee circuit. And I, I didn't really have a firm vision of what I would do or where the opportunity was, but I would just see people and, you know, and, and because I'd been away for six months, people would say, what do you think of what they're doing in Oxford? And I say, well, I don't know. I've been away for six months and they're good people and I wish them every success. So then, then, then the dial would turn and it would be, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Like, and, and then you get into sort of a discussion. I'll, I'll, I'll share another uh, just quick story on this time. So I'd started these coffees after two days, you know, and I was wearing, you know, a smart shirt, a blazer, slacks, you know, I look good. Anyway, so after two days, my wife said, so how's it going? And I said, well, you know, I, I can't get people off the holiday narrative. Everybody want to ask me, how was your holiday? Where'd you go? Blah, 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 blah. And so she looks at me and she says, well, why don't you dress like you mean it? Next day, blue suit, white shirt, dark tie, boom. Nobody gives a shit about your holidays. And, you know, it was like, it was just changing the channel. So, and which is why you'll see every King setter with one of these on today, because it's just, you know, when, when, when we're on, you're on. And, Suit and you know, tie, that's for, it. The rest of the time you do whatever you want. But like, that's such an indelible mark on me. So um, the, the, uh, and, and, you know, it became obvious fairly quickly that uh, there was no oper- real estate opportunity strategy being being executed in Canada and the large pension funds who we had a good relationship with all had an allocation for Canada opportunity fund real estate. So, you know, I went to, uh, you know, in discussions with several who had been partners with us in Oxford. And I said, well, you know, what if we put a fund together and we'll go do this. Was there a model in the U S or elsewhere that you were modeling King said after, or was it a new idea? No, it's the models in the U S nothing in Canada, but there's models in the U S. So, you know, I, you, you look at the, you know, 200, you, you pick the 20 funds in the U.S. We took their average terms and then that was the terms and everybody was OK. Um, and um, so so that um, that started, we raised 220 million in our first opportunity fund, a growth LP. Of course, we're Canadians. We call it a growth LP, not an opportunity fund, because we don't want to sound like we're taking opportunity of anyone. So so that started that 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 investment thesis which still exists today and and uh with the same investors having you know we're now an lp7 and and they've been very supportive and you know the returns have been good and so like everybody you have the same investors since 2002 uh, for, for for the most part yeah. yeah wow that that's a hell of a track record um well i think um it's you know it was a carefully chosen cohort um, and the cohort gets along very well, and it's been a very constructive outcome. And so uh, it's it's moved very well. Yeah. So King said, from my understanding, and people can go to the website and, and see for themselves, but my understanding, or you can tell me, you invest in real estate directly, you invest in other operators, you invest in funds. Like, Do you have a focus or do you do, you do all those things? So the focus is more investment related. In other words, we're trying to produce a premium risk-weighted return. So if you think that through, different, different, um, different strategies have different risk-weighted returns. So our opportunity fund, for example, our growth fund, is an event-driven strategy. So we invest for an event, you execute the event, and then you sell. So it might be you buy a building that's half-leased and you lease it up and then sell it. Or you buy a piece of land and build an industrial building on it and then you sell it. So whatever whatever that event is, you execute it and you move on. Um, and that has certain return parameters. Then our core strategy income fund is exactly the opposite. It's where you buy lifers. Um, and it's, you know, it's buildings where you say that's a lower current return, but I think that'll have a great growth over a long period of time. And that's a lifer. 
Then we have a special situation uh, infill strategy opportunity fund. We have some debt funds that are different. We have a senior mortgage fund, a high yield fund. And so, you know, the different, the different funds, I mean, the Royal York's held in something different again. So, so different strategies have different risk-weighted returns and some common investors and some different investors. Mm-hmm. And if, 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 you, if you think in, in, in an equity um, business, I mean, you might have large cap US, you might have emerging markets, you might have, you know, uh, uh, I, a, um, uh, you know, growth company US, you know, they're, they're different strategies. What goes in them is up to the manager. But when you talk about what's the strategy, if you think U.S. big cap, you're looking for low volatility, high quality income and so on. Sure. Yeah. And so you said you're, well, you were 130 people. I don't know if you're still around that number. Uh, How do you run Kingset today? How hands-on are you versus how much do you delegate? Um, Well, I mean, my, my... you know, my personal role uh, has evolved uh, over time. Uh, today, I'm the CEO. Um, Rob Coomer is president. And, you know, and he is the also the chair of the management committee. And the management committee, which Rob chairs, uh, basically is the leadership of the business. Um, my role is, um, you know, I'm, I'm on investor relations, you know, fundraising, um, key strategy issues, uh, and and platform development. So you know, there's a variety of things I do. I mean, my my you know my sort of zeitgeist is I'm very good at very little. But what I'm <laughs> but, but what I I am good at is actually important. And so I've always tried to surround myself, and this was a secret at, at Oxford as well, with people that are far better at all the other elements of the wheel that you require to execute a business and run a business. Yeah. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to build teams that, you know, work together and work together constructively where there's people far better than me at most of the thing. Um, and, uh, and I think an important role that I would have as well at Kingset is, is, you know, clarity on our values and uh, uh, our culture, which, you know, again, I go back to our opening comments, like I think is, fundamental to running a great business. Well, and I wouldn't think, I mean, certainly with the size of Kingset, uh, I, I wouldn't think you would need, you have a very capable team to to manage uh, the investments you make and that sort of thing. But in the real estate business, uh, and certainly in the private equity business, fundraising seems to be the thing that is the the constant. You're, you're, you're uh, having investor relations, you're looking for new money. I was uh, at a talk a few years ago, uh, Stephen Schwartzman at uh, Blackstone was talking and he was saying, one of his biggest milestones later in his career was the the first time they raised a billion dollar fund and he didn't have to go to any meetings and that was a very big milestone for him because it seems to me that that uh, at your level as you grow this this kind of company the sort of having those relationships with the funders uh, is the one thing that is probably the last to go would, would, would that be would that be accurate yeah for sure and, and you know for a number of reasons i mean i you know i mean i've known these people forever and, you know, I'm not going to say, well, here, I'd like to have, you know, Mary or Bill talk to you from now on. I mean, right. you know, it's just not, just not how that's done. But, but the, you know, it's easy to raise money when the business is delivering great return. And, and that's all about a much broader machine. I got the easiest job in town. <laughs> Hard work, you know, are the men and women that are, you know, in the trenches, getting it done, you know, sourcing the investments, executing the strategies, exiting when appropriate, um, putting up the numbers, putting up the returns, doing all of the reporting and accounting and so on that is so fundamental to to have your backbone. So it's all of that. And then I get to come in and say, well, you know, would you like to buy some more? How tough is that? Right, right. So I have a few more questions about the real estate business, and then I want to get into some some ideas and and, and pick your brain about kind of the future of the business and, and opportunities that exist. So the first thing I'm wondering is from a just a, a tenant standpoint, from a a, 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 um, a understanding kind of what the future look like looks like of the tenant. Do you see a player like Amazon or these sort of e-commerce companies really? tearing into, into retail going forward? Do you think that the anchor tenants that we see today will be around in, in five, 10 years? I, I think you want to focus on retail specifically. Retail 
is the most dynamic asset class because people's behavior is the most dynamic. And this this has gone on for some time. So this this isn't new. Um, and I think the you know the clicks and bricks, you know, to what degree um, you know great retail brands will rely on a digital presence and a physical presence is still evolving. Um, you see, I think it was just today Amazon opened its first uh, clothing store. Um, I, and I think I think you'll see uh, a very important part uh, of the of the consumer's chain will be a footprint, but it'll be different than it's been before. Um, and you know, it's remember you probably don't consumers distributing where you go up to the counter. I do, <laughs> I do. You, you go through the. The, the the little books there and say well I'd like to buy the you know this toaster or whatever and then somebody would skirt back in the back and get your toaster um but you know it is it is you know the, the the models I mean Apple has shown the power of a retail model to augment you know their business and so you know we'll see this continue to evolve uh, would I see the same people you know I don't know like maybe maybe not um, but to some degree it's paint on tails in other words you know, the physical space will be occupied by someone, um, but it'll be someone with a great strategy. And, you know, there's many basics that most of us consume that don't kind of suit a, suit, suit a, a digital-only um, platform. But um, I, I think retail is super exciting. You know, Canada's in a good spot in the retail space. We, you know, we have only two-thirds of the retail square footage per capita that you have in the U.S. So there isn't a, there isn't a significant overhang. There probably is some overhang. There's going to be some uh, repositioning of retail space into other uses, but that's been that's gone on kind of forever. So um, it's nothing new there. And I think owners of those kinds of properties, um, you know, under, you know, the successful owners will say, you know what? How do I reposition this? How do I how do I adjust this to meet you know evolving consumer demands and tenant demands? And mm-hmm. you know what? There's there's lots of examples of how that's going to work out. Yeah. And then what do you think of the office space? And I, I'm sure I can sort of imagine your answer here, but uh, as more and more companies, I mean, I just read a little while ago, uh, uh, Shopify, I, I think they gave up a lot of their leases and certainly we hear companies like this uh, out, out in the US doing it. Do you think that the office will look the same or something like it did a few years ago uh, if we look into the future? I, you know, I think office will look different. It'll, it'll evolve given, given um, you know, this experience over the last two years. But, but I, I think that the, the issue um, about having a spot to get together and collaborate, communicate, culture, grow, learn, talent development, so on and so forth, uh, all of those things, I think, suffer dramatically 2D. So the people that are the biggest, have, have had the biggest shortcoming over the last two years are young people trying to build their toolkit. Because when you're in the office, you see what other people are doing. It's easy to ask a question. You learn things, you hear things, you like whatever. You get involved in things. You go to a meeting, come out of the meeting, and a senior person says, you know what, you did a great job of this, but maybe next time you could do a better job of that. Um, and all those little things are lost. And so it's it's the youth that it's the most disadvantaged because they're sitting in their parents' home or, God forbid, a 500-square-foot condo by themselves saying, I didn't sign up. To sleep in the office, right? right? And, yeah. and how am I? Yeah, maybe I can do what I'm being asked to do now. But how do I develop? How do I grow? How do I network? How do I get out and do all those things? So that's where I think, um, you know, there are some who think, you know, the office is dead or whatever. You, you know, like look what tenants are doing. You know, Google just this week put down a billion dollars to buy another building in London. Yeah. Um, you know, like, and and when I when I sit in in Toronto and look at what our tenants are doing, um, they're renewing. They're taking more space. The market's quite active. Vacancy peaked in uh, June of '01, and is down almost two percent since then. So there's a lot wow. of action. Going on. So so, he, but but he but it's not all necessarily going to be the same. It's not everybody's going to do the the same job. Shopify has said, you know, you can work from anywhere. The reason is, is because it's hard for them to get people to work in Ottawa. That's so, true. You know, they, they've got a big, uh, a big uh, footprint in Toronto, which they've expanded. But they're also trying to reach out to people everywhere because, you know, there, it, there is a talent war. But ultimately, you know, if you if you look at the what 
the big techs are saying is they got to get their people together. Because, yeah. you know, and if you've been to, uh, as I have in uh, the Googleplex in, in Silicon Valley in California, like, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, you feel so much energy. And, there, you know, you feel so much creativity and so on and so forth just by, it's a bunch of old industrial buildings, but they've tricked them up. And, like, it, it really is a powerful campus. And so you can see why out of there comes, people are inventing stuff that's just, like, blows your mind. Yeah. Um, and, and I just don't think you can cobble together a whole bunch of people on 2D wearing, you know, bathing suits and a shirt um, and have the same response as people in a room and talking and, you know, pizza at 11 o'clock at night and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I think I think, off, you know, you've got growth in the economy. You've got uh, in Canada, you've got strong uh, tech demand growth. Um, you've got. Some people re- repositioning their footprint. Um, and I don't think that's really begun yet because most of the large employers don't want to give up any space because they're not sure what's right. So I think there will be there will be a tale here. Well, you see some people saying, you know what, I can do with a little less space. But but the business is saying, you know, um, we you, you know, we we if people are to be there half the time, which half of the time? <laughs> you know, is every team going to be half short? Right. Or or is everybody going to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? I'm sorry. Yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or, or every day. But Friday is that is that model going to evolve? And I think these things are all in play. And I'm hopeful that as we get into the spring, that ultimately we realize that coronavirus Omicron is the flu. And, uh, you know, we've had flu I've already from- realized that I'm, I'm waiting for everyone else to, to realize well, that, but I, you know, and because. You know, everyone we talked to who's had, um, uh, you know, Omicron said, well, I sort of had flu for two days. And I like to call it a working flu. It's a flu you go to work with, you know. Right. Um, but so so I think as we get to that point that we'll get back to, you know, restaurants will be full. Everybody will want to go to by then a Blue Jays game, I guess. Uh, maybe watch the Leafs and the playoffs. Um, yeah. But, you know, do do whatever it is and get back to your life. And, and you know, when for King Setters, when we said, called everybody back after Labor Day. Like people were pumped. Yeah. And, they, and you know what? They want to see the, their neighbor. And they said, oh, what'd you do on the weekend? How's your kids? How's your spouse? You know, like, where are you going on holidays? You know, like it's, we're all humans, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's get into some ideas here and we'll, we'll, we'll bridge off this idea we were just talking about, about the office space. So I was talking with uh, a CEO um, the other day who has got a company about 3,000 people across uh, about a dozen US states. So it's a large team. Of course, they've been scattered and, and remote uh, since, since the pandemic started. And he said that what he's doing going forward is thinking more about office hotels. So the sense of having lots of offices that are smaller so the footprint would be let's let's have a couple thousand square feet in, in Miami, a couple thousand square feet in Los Angeles, San Francisco, et cetera. And the idea there would be um, you could have employees, you could hire effectively people anywhere, and there'd be a gathering spot for them. And I kind of said, this sounds a lot like Breather, which was a company that is no longer around. But you know, the idea was you could sort of swipe your card and go in and rent this place for whatever, 30 bucks for an hour. Do you think that model, let's call it the, the the breather model or something like that, would make sense for a company? Or do you still think, no, no, you need a footprint, a space that's yours in one spot? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. You know, I'm of the connector view, which is, you know, I want to have, I, I'd like to have my partners, employees, and coworkers to have an emotional and physical connection with each other. And, you know, part of that is, is that, uh, you have a place, your neighbor has a place. When you sit on your place, you know who your neighbor is. You're connecting with those people. You're doing, you know, like you're going to lunch or drink after work. You're doing stuff. Large organizations that say we're going to do hoteling or hot desking, well, you know, you go and you're just a stranger. It's like going to the airport and, you know, you pull into a carol and, you know, plug into it and it's got all, everything you need. You don't know who's next to you. And if you say, I, you know, I really wanted to ask Sally a question. And then you have to look and say, there's a program to tell you where Sally is. Sally might be a floor away or, you know, because she had to check in. So you know where she is, but she's not there. Um, and I think I think what's happened is there's been a disconnect in responsibility between the employee and the, and the employer. When we were shut out of our office for a year, you know, 
we had more overhead, I'm sorry, more turnover than we had in the previous 20 years. Mm. People left the market, people, you know, we'd never had anybody go almost go to, to a competitor, going to a competitor, stuff like that. Um, we come back to the office, everybody's back again. No one leaves. And I think if if your allegiance is is to a screen, then who's on the other side of the screen? I don't know. Like, well, it doesn't matter. So I, I think the whole issue, you know, in the U.S., you see all this talk about the great resignation. Yeah. Well, they're not resigning. It's not like working is a lifestyle choice. It's that they, they're leaving business A, going to business B, going to business C with impunity. Because you can. All you have to do is, is change what Zoom link you hit. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's different if you have the the physical and emotional connection with, you know, I like to, I, you know, I go to the office because I like Mary, I like Phil, I don't like Bill as much, but whatever. And then, you know, I like, uh, you know, Kathy always gives me some energy. You don't know, like you're in a team and you get energy being in the team. And, yeah, I've I've heard you know in in the age of Zoom, firing s- someone is just like you you hit the red button and they're fired. You know, it's like so it's a different emotional experience. Right. Well, and you know what? Part of it is. You're not teaching me anything because, you know, like information you get off your phone. Like, I, I mean, there's no fact that isn't known that I can't get on Google. But if, I, if you're teaching me how to, how to grow, how to learn, how to communicate, how to think, how to advocate, um, you know, how to contribute, how to like all those things. You know, it's all the subtle gestures that uh, come from being in person. So um, and I think. You know, some people will say, I like working remote and, and I say, that's great. But for most people saying, you know, I didn't sign up to sleep in the office. So I like the office over there. And when I'm done, I'll come over here. And when I'm over there, I'm okay with this. And when I'm over here, you don't need to know. So, um, and, and I think, I think that, that, you know, there's so much social activity in a constructive workplace that contributes to the progress of the business. Yeah, um, that's great. So let's let's go into another idea here. One thing that I think a lot about, and of course we already talked about it once, is the idea of fundraising. If you want to be in the real estate business, um, you got to have money. You got to have access to capital, banks, equity partners, etc. So, I was doing some some investigating, and I don't think this exists, but I think it's a pretty cool idea. I'd love to get your take on it. Um, have you heard of AngelList? Uh, no. AngelList is basically a site where you can raise money from angel investors. So if you're an angel investor, it's a marketplace to raise money for startups, that sort of thing. And there's some pretty big investors on AngelList, you know, big names as well. And they have their own funds and you can co-invest in their funds. Anyhow, so I was looking around and I was thinking, why isn't there an AngelList for real estate? Why isn't there an online marketplace where I can say, hey, here's my track record. You know, I'm not John Love, but I've got I've got 20 rental homes. They're all doing well. They're cash flowing. Uh, I want to buy another 20. Why don't you invest with me? Uh, now, I'm sure there's all kinds of compliance and, and governance here, but do you think there's sort of a market for that? Or do you, do you think that real estate investing is, is a high-risk enough asset class that you really shouldn't be doing that? Um, well, first of all, it's not, I don't consider it a high-risk asset class. Uh, you know, People have tried to do um, you know, some of these online versions, but you know, here's the challenge. Um, that, that I see, you know, investing in real estate is significant quantums of capital. And if you're raising money at $100 at a time or $1,000 at a time, you know, it's a tough hill to climb. You know, and I, I would tell anyone, if you're looking to create a fund, you've got to create a track record. If you're looking to create a track record, you've got to build some employment backbone. You've got to have some experience of what you're doing. Then, then, you, then you've got to find a team that is diverse enough to execute a strategy. Then you can raise some small money. Then if you're successful, you know, you can raise some bigger money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, too many people think it can be done in one step. And while well, I suppose it could, uh, I certainly wasn't able to get it done in one step. So it, it's, it's building, it's building, building blocks and uh, to, to be able to do it. And, and I think sometimes people are uh, always focused on the wrong agenda because when you're raising money, you can think of only one thing. How can I make the investor outperformance expectations, his or her. Mm. So, you know, cause it's all about what can I do for them? Too many times everybody says, well, you know, I got to have a fee of this because I got to eat and live and everything else. And that's the wrong, you know, you're thinking you're looking at the wrong end of the telescope. The challenge is you've got to say, how can I make that other person money? You figure that out. Life goes well. Now, you know, it's thin pickings to begin with because that's the nature of the game. 
But as you get experience, as you build scale and so on and so forth, it can work yeah. fine. Is it, is it easier for you now? I mean, put your reputation aside for a second. Is it easier to raise larger amounts of money with a track record than it is to raise smaller amounts of money with, with, without a track record? It's way easier. It's way easier. <laughs> it's it's easier. You know, it's funny. I years ago when I was raising money for a startup, I I remember someone said to me, you know, the problem is you're trying to raise a million bucks. Try try to raise ten million. It'll be much easier. <laughs> People like yeah. writing bigger checks. Yeah. So so I'm not sure I would agree with that. But at, you know, the like I'm standing on top of a big platform. It's got a phenomenal track record. Um, deep relationships with a whole variety of investors. And and you know, if I if I say, look, we've got another investment thesis that we feel passionate about and you know we'd like you to consider people consider it yeah so yeah. you know no one will do it unless they think it's their best interest and then you better make sure you outperform what their objectives are so um but you know too many people in you know want to raise too much money they never get off the ground um and i i always say you know like start small and and you know i would i would tell an individual looking to break into this business First thing you got to do is understand the business, which means you should work for a big opco um, in leasing, in property management, you know, customer facing roles. You have to understand what drives value in real estate. And then, you know, as you as you go up that chain and maybe you maybe you go up senior management in those chains. But as you start to understand how value is created, because you start to understand how a customer views value, then you can be of some of uh, some some value, then you can create some value. Um, but it, it takes some time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any big goals left that you are still looking at? Or there, are there things you want to achieve that you haven't been able to in Kingset or otherwise? Oh, for sure. You know, I, I think I'd like to see Kingset continue to scale and grow and, and, you know, perform and so on and so forth. And I think there's so much scope inside the business to do um, so many exciting things. So we'll just put that over here. Um, you know, personally, we just completed the Barlow MS Center, which was a big initiative. And that was a combination of the design development and so on and so forth of this. This is a Canada's largest MS clinic in, in St. Mike's in, in Toronto. Um, the, the design development and, and obviously a big financial com commitment. You know, like there's more of those kinds of things that I look forward to because I think part of, you know, you'd like to think that I could take you know, the skills that I've learned over the last 700 years and apply them to, you know, other things that can make the world a better place. And uh, anything that I can do to make Canada better, to make it more inclusive, more supportive, to allow, to increase the hope index. So every Canadian and every, of every element of diversity in every part of the country can aspire to improve their life or improve their skills. Um, you know, that's, Anything I can do in those regards gives me a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so two more quick things here. I wanted to kind of get your take on. I was looking at a, at a, a prop tech company uh, the other day out of uh, out of uh, out of an incubator. I thought it was really interesting. So the the goal was one of the really big challenges um, in real estate that people face is buying their first home. Home ownership. There's a lot of renters, and home ownership can you know do great things for people financially and set them up. So there's this company that I came across that was doing something interesting. It was they were buying homes and they were renting, uh, working with people as a rent-to-own relationship. So the the concept is actually pretty simple. You can pay us rent, and we'll bank a portion of that rent that can be used in two or three years as a down payment for you to buy this home. And if you decide not to, no problem. We'll we'll give you that that portion of the cash back or maybe a discounted portion. Do you think there are creative things, or do you think we need to have creative ways like that to get more people into the housing market? Or do you think that the systems that, that exist today are sufficient? Well, I would say that's not really prop tech. That's just, that's just some creative uh, financial engineering. And, and we are looking they call at it just, prop tech. <laughs> we're looking at just a strategy like that. Uh, and there's, there's two or three people that are doing things. I'm, you know, I, th I think the housing crisis is not one, there's no one solution. And um, it is all the way from coming up with creative ideas to help people buy a house. Um, it's, it's doing some affordable housing with the various programs that are available. Um, it all stems on, we do need more housing. <laughs> you know, we welcome 400,000 Canadians um, a year. Uh, we don't build enough homes for all those people. So 
you know, by definition, the crisis continues to get worse. And you can look at the housing units per capita, and you'll see that Canada is the lowest in the G8, that Toronto is the lowest in Canada. And Toronto's got a lower number today than they had five years ago. Like, this isn't brain surgery. We're not building enough housing for the number of people we're welcoming to the country. And we, I think we've got a, a pretty good immigration strategy, and we need the immigrant. So, you know, like, I bring it on. But we have to build houses for them to live in or right. apartments or whatever. So um, it, it does, you know, it does come with we got to get on with the supply program. And supply is limited by all of the various restrictions on developing new uh, housing of every kind. And we, we can't live on just point towers. You know, we have to have houses and townhouses and three-story walk-ups and six-story buildings and, you know, the missing middle and, and so on and so forth. So this needs to be a full-on offensive. And the reason it's, it's, it's so difficult to crack is you need three levels of government on the same page. Right. And all three right. levels of government don't trust each other. So, you know, it is, it's, it's endemic as a problem and, you know, will not get fixed until there's basically a common, a common view that we just need more housing. Yeah. And the last thing I'm curious about is around um, crypto. And I, and I don't know if you have any exposure to this in the real estate world, but in the crypto world, one thing I see a lot is uh, NFTs, and the idea that you could use these non-fungible tokens to uh, have people, you know, cut out a bunch of the middlemen, and you can say, you know, this piece of property instead of a deed, we're just going to have this token attached to, to the property. Have you come across anything like that? Does this make sense to you? Well, I I think you know uh, there's there's a bunch of different concepts here. I mean, using blockchain technology um, to uh, do land titles and so on and so forth. It's actually pretty interesting. Um, and I think there's, I think there's lots of applications where, uh, blockchain can, can be a constructive element in, in, in the real estate chain. Cryptocurrency itself, you know, is trying to solve a problem that I don't know. I, I don't know what problem it's trying to solve. And when people talk about it and I see Bitcoin today is $30,000 uh, a coin, it was $60,000 a coin two months ago. Like, I don't know what the hell it is. And it, and you know, the question I ask anyone is pro uh, crypto. I said, well, have you got your life savings in crypto? And they, well, of course not, I, you know, but I, but it's a good diversifier. Well, I don't know. So is a roller coaster, but I, you know, so I, other than avoiding taxes and being able to do illegal transactions that are not traceable, I'm not sure where um, Bitcoin fits in. We've got digital currency. <laughs> I get on my phone, pay pay a bill anywhere in the world. Yeah, right. That you yeah. know, and boom, it's done. But anyway, so I, like, I'm not a big crypto, but blockchain's different. Blockchain, I think, um, I think we'll see more and more usage of blockchain um, in 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 different elements. I mean, it'll, it'll take our friends in the government to say, you know, that they're prepared to trade land titles for blockchain and stuff like that. Um, but so that'll be interesting, maybe yeah. another hundred years, but it, it is, uh, you know, I can certainly see what the application there is. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. 